Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Ambassador Nuzipu with January Badil is my guest today for this new episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. Sis Noz, as we fondly address her, has extensive experience in both the local and international sectors. She is a seasoned non-executive director of companies such as Mercedes-Benz South Africa and the MTN Foundation, amongst others. She has a passion for working on issues related to human rights, social justice, gender equality, corporate governance, and sustainable development. Sisnos chairs the Council of the Nelson Mandela University and the board of the UN Global Compact Local Network. Sisnos, thank you for making the time. And I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, long overdue, actually. Can you tell me a bit about your upbringing? Um, What are your most treasured memories? Do you have siblings? I have two siblings, yes. We were born in Kimberley, of all places in the yeah. world. The big, the big, the big hole. Hut. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, of course, huh? yeah. In fact, In fact, when we grew up, it was Greenpoint. Oh, and then, you know, Khalishur was a new township that they built, yeah. So we grew up in Khalishur. Mm-hmm. And our parents were teachers, but they went into business because obviously they had ambitions. And, uh, yeah, so, so we grew up in, in, in Khalishur village in, in Kimberley. Um, which was, you know, if you are asking me about what I remember that I really treasure, it was actually the township. Mm. <laughs> the township, they took us out of, out of the African schools because of Bantu education, and uh, we were put in coloured schools. Uh. So we used to cycle to town, to the coloured schools, yeah. and, uh, and cycle back to the, to oh. the township. Yeah where it was talk about psychological safety was oh, the best thing This is interesting. I, I didn't know coloured schools were open. Yeah, they were desegregated. Oh, okay. uh, and they, they, in fact, we were, we were some of the first kids that yeah. were allowed into coloured schools huh. in Kimberley because my parents were so, we're not having Bounty education. I remember them travelling all over the Northern Cape oh. looking for schools for us, oh. yeah. Gosh. So, yeah. You are the former ambassador to Switzerland, Liechtenstein, and Holy See. I'm very fascinated that Vatican is called the Holy See. Mm. What did you miss most about South Africa when you were living outside the country? And what do you observe South Africans do not appreciate and capitalize on about themselves on the world stage? Well, I left in 2001 and came back in 2005. So I literally only did one term of four years, which is what ambassadors normally do. Mm. Um, and uh, what I missed most was actually my family, because we, as you know, we're very close. Yeah. So that's what I missed most. I had been living, I had lived abroad for ten years in London before. Yeah. So going to Switzerland was seven years later after I'd come home Gosh. and then left and again. again. Yeah. So I was sort of I knew how to create a home elsewhere. Um, the house, of course, you can imagine, was very nice. Mm. You know, the old, the old government had, had made sure that they acquire very, 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 very yeah. pretty houses. You almost feel like it could have been a castle. <laughs> it was big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
of it. It was yeah. beautiful and it sort of bordered on a nice forest, you oh, know. Wow. So I was very able to appreciate yeah. the, the autumn colours when they, you oh. know, when the seasons change colours. It was quite dramatic. So yeah, so, so being an ambassador was interesting. It was the first time for, for many of us women ambassadors because I, President Mbeki had decided that we needed to have more women in the diplomatic corps. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of us were appointed and, and left to represent him in these countries. Of yeah. course, you always represent the president. I think South Africa actually um, was operating above its own weight, yeah. contrary to popular belief mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, we were very well represented, uh, both at the multilateral spaces of, of international relations at the UN in New York, mm -hmm. at the UN in Geneva, uh, and, and I was a bilateral uh, ambassador, which means I dealt with the Swiss government uh, in promoting our own foreign policy and understanding theirs and how we could collaborate yeah. to make the world a better place at the United Nations level. So South Africa was really quite active in my time. Yes. That's the time when Tabombeki also with Wade and Obasanjo, you know, oh, they created the NAPAD. That was the area of NAPAD, yes. It's like real history now, hey? Absolutely. We've just forgotten all those. Yes. Uh, it was almost like the glory days of the new South Africa. Absolutely. And, you know, because he was more interested in the economy, we'd had Madiba who'd brought us peace. His agenda was more building the economy, and so the economy was doing very well. And as ambassadors, we had to, to really push hard to improve our trade relationships with the countries in which we were accredited. Uh, but also, uh, the wonderful thing was we were also encouraged to not forget the international anti-apartheid movement because it was a global movement. Mm. And, and we were very much flavor of the month when I was in Switzerland still globally. Mm. South Africa had been part of a global change process and people felt they still owned our liberation. Um, and so it was very easy to make friends with people in government, people in business, journalists, uh, and... Uh, yeah. The, the ordinary Swiss people. Isn't it sad? Um, if you were an ambassador then, then now, how would you... I just wonder how the experience would have been so different. Well, it, it would be different because the last 10 years there was so much erosion, yeah. both of the embassies in those countries but also of the Department of Foreign Affairs here. You know, those days we had direct access to the presidency I don't know how much guidance current yeah. ambassadors really get from the office of the president, but um, those days it, it was we were really we were activist ambassadors, yes. and and we we were very conscious polit politically, um, and we understood our foreign policy very well because it was drummed into us. Yeah. We had an excellent DG in uh, Ayanda and Saluba, Dr. Ayanda and Saluba. Yes. Who's now at, at Discovery. He's the corporate affairs executive at Discovery. And of course, uh, Dr. Nkosis Lamini Zuma was our minister, and she was razor sharp. Um, and, and, and so it was for real, for most of us, it was a privilege to work mm. with Mbeki, Lamini Zuma, and, uh, and Saluba. Wow. Um, what gives you meaning in life? Well, my passions. My passions, which is social justice, uh -huh. equality, 
I fight for gender justice, I fight for racial justice, and I'm a human rights junkie, if you want to call me that. So I spend my life reading about it, and I spend my time trying to live it. Gosh. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you do for fun? <laughs> I listen to music, I dance. <laughs> Because I mean, when you look at our human rights and you look at the world, just look at the gender issues, it can get quite heavy. Get heavy, but you know what? We also have to face them. Right now, gender-based violence is the thing in the world. You know, when UN Women did their, their report um, to prepare for Beijing, the last when they celebrated Beijing in 2020, Gender-based violence had increased in every single country across the globe. Not oh even gosh. the Nordics were better at really? it. Really? Yeah. They're normally the, the best. But uh, What is really the problem? I think it was a mixture of women getting stronger and, and there's a lot of pushback. But I think uh, COVID also didn't help because people were behind the scenes in their homes, locked in theirs, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's nice when man and woman get up in the morning, the man goes to work, the woman goes to her work, they both come together, yeah. but when you're locked in your own homes every day, you can get on top of each other and often it, it leads to, to some frictions and which end up in violence. Yeah, yeah. now so that you're talking COVID. about 2010, 2020. not 2010, 20, she subtracted another decade. Um, you said somewhere that you put off writing books because 2020 is when you really started conceiving Right to Speak. And as you're talking about gender-based violence is why I'm even thinking of the book now as well. You said you put off writing books for years um, and then your 70... 70th birthday started looming and you decided to fulfill your deferred dream but instead of writing your own story it's very interesting to me that you invited about 60 women from 25 different african countries to narrate their own journeys and you published them in this book called right to speak what is the dominating wisdom that you have learned as you were editing these perspectives and and what perspective have you yourself gained around, you know, the view of the African female particularly? Yes. So let me start with the, the motivation for doing it. Um, it was really, as I say, my own personal desire to document, to write our story as we have experienced our lives. Because um, I, I was saying, you know, I say somewhere in the book that I know my mom and her peers at the time when I was a kid um, and I know how much they did yeah. you know socially as well as politically to, to you know working for, for justice in South Africa on the one hand but also being very community active yes. activists uh, and when I look for anything about my mom and her sisters because they were there she had three sisters um, and they were all in the Af National Council of African Women wow. doing various things. If you look around, you can't find anything written about yeah. their life stories. And so I thought, you, you know, here we are, a different generation. We are going to go without anything being written about us or our, us telling yeah. our own stories yes. the way we experience them. So that was the real motivation. 
And, and interestingly, when I asked all the women, they were very frightened about writing because I think writing, putting anything down on paper and the idea that the world is going to read it is a bit of a daunting yeah. idea. So, so although there was some struggling around it, you know, we were able to motivate and cajole and really uh, encourage the women to write. Um, the editing yeah. was very hard work. Gosh, but it came um, out beautifully. I mean, really, you. it's a beautiful book. Yes, and, and the wisdom I picked up is the resilience, but also the, 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 the way in which women commit to what they do. You know, each one of these women, all 55 of them, have done something to make the world a better place. And, they, and it sometimes be at, at a cost to themselves. Yeah. I mean, they battle with issues inside their families, in their communities in the broader countries that they live in and some of them take on their brothers for not wanting them to be educated, others take on their fathers for wanting to sell them off into marriage. You know, so they started fighting and pushing back from a very young, tender in age on the, yeah, in their yeah. own homes. Um, but then they, they just thrive, you know, because they are so determined that what they are experiencing is not going to happen to to other girls in their communities. So it was just resilience and you know, I just felt, I think it's about time they give us a chance to rule the world. Yeah. I don't know what you think, but I certainly think we need a chance. I'm not, I'm not gonna <laughs> wait for permission to start doing it. Which is, uh, I mean, it's, it's beautiful stories, which is such a contrast from my life and what my father did for me, yes. giving me that kind of freedom. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about influence, you say as we grow older, you start to understand that you can't change the world. But you have a sphere of influence, and it's in that sphere you can effect change. Yeah. What wisdom can you share in retrospect about how, as a young person, you select your sphere of influence? Yeah, uh, uh, the wisdom for me was really... Um living consciously, being aware of where you are, what you, what you are, who you are at any point in time. Um, so I always think, you know, when I was young, my first job as a teacher, and I taught in a boys' school oh. um, in Lesotho. I was 23 years old at the time. So I was very young, and yeah. I, I needed to understand this context. You know, how was I going to influence these young boys who 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 were... Growing up as teenagers, they were mainly sort of grade 11, 12 mm -hmm. uh, kids that I taught English to. Oh so I was nearly their age. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm visualizing. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 had to, I had to use that, that space to, to try and influence them about how to respect girls and how to respect women. You know, it wasn't part of the curriculum, but you bring it in and you try to mm. to impart that kind of side of, of theirs. To the, and, and all I wanted really was for them to respect me because I was a, their teacher. Yes. So, uh, and, and how you then exercise the authority in the space where there's not really much difference between your pupils and yourself, but you need to exercise authority and how do you do it in such a way that um, uh, you, you build both them as as young men, uh, but also educate them and give them a high quality education. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then on board situations, you know, sometimes you you can't lead from the front because of certain type 
dynamics in the boardroom, but you can certainly lead from the back. So understanding that environment and thinking, okay, this requires a different approach, so I'm yeah. going to approach it from the back and do the influence in that way. Yeah. And it's been, again, my influences have been, again, around social justice issues yeah. in the workplace, equal, work, equal pay for work of equal value, sexual harassment in the workplace and all of that, you know, racial inequality yeah. in uh, procurement and, and supply chains and so on. I must say one of um, a topic that fascinates me, I like to do research in it, uh, unwanted advances. Right. Because by the time it gets to harassment, it's, you know, uh, it's one of those very grey areas. Absolutely. That I don't think as society we actually talk about. Not enough. Yeah. It's certainly not enough. Yeah. What do you think your unique value proposition is? What would we miss if you were not in the world? Me. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I think, I don't know, you know, do, do you love to tell me that one? I mean, I think my serenity mm -hmm. is, is something that people find calming and comforting. Um, do you yeah, get angry? Me, I do get angry. How does yeah, that express itself? I think it's my anger itself? that makes me do this work. Is it? Yeah. It's just how you express it that's more constructive. Exactly. But I do, I do get angry because I think if you stop getting angry, you actually don't do anything about your situation. And I'm not just angry, I'm, I'm angry about heterosexual men and women oppressing gay men and women as well. Yeah. So I'm offended by that. You know, it offends me, yeah. and so that's why it, it urges me into doing something. Yeah, it's not just or things that so. impact you, but also in the interest of in other interest humans of around well. you. Because we are all human beings, first, yeah. first and foremost, and, uh, you know, we, create, we need space in the world, you know. Each of us is just a segment in an orange, really. And, and you need to be aware that there are other segments that are not the same as the orange ones, but that are different, but we're all in the same space. Yeah, I'm very fascinated. How do you acquire that? How does, because a lot of us are very self interested it's like what's in it for me how do you acquire that ability because you know we talk ubuntu but we don't really live it yes how did you become the person you are apartheid i lived in, i was born in 1950 so i lived when 1948 when apartheid was formalized and turned into the system that we live with i was only two it, I, was, I was two years old when I entered the world of formal apartheid in South Africa. So throughout my life, we, we, we experienced it. And, and, and I think that's what makes you become anti-racist, anti-sexist. Uh, it's just that we, I don't think South African governments have told the story of what happened really yeah. enough. I think, you know, we haven't done what the Jews have done and tell the story of the Holocaust. And they keep it fresh on the agenda yes. all the time. But we sort of, oh, it happened, just forget about it. But it, it, was, it, was, a, it was an experience that either made you into a better human being or broke you into a human being who had so little self-esteem that you, you kind of gave up. Mm. But, but all of us lost a bit of our humanity in the process, you know, because the oppressors also lose their humanity. 
And I, and I think it's unfortunate that until you see what you also lost as a human being, even though you were on the receiving end of privilege, mm. um, I think that's what's going to change. I think there's things. a book that needs to be written there, which <laughs> you need to write. Because honestly, that conversation is no longer part of the conversation that we're having. No. Um, it's like, you know, 28 years on, you know, get over it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like, and you, you know, won't get over it until... until you deal with it. Yeah. It's like most things in life. You, you, if, if you deny them, they always come back. They always nag you. In different ways. In different ways. And I exactly. think our society kind of shows that trauma. Precisely. That same in America. It's exactly the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh. Talk to me about the first instance when you realized that you had the position, the power, and the authority to change somebody's life or the organization you were leading. What was that specific event, and how did that realization make you feel? Um, gosh, there are many experiences, but I'll use the ambassador one, because yeah. that was also sort of like more international and global. Um, you know, when you, were, when you were asked to go and represent the president, you, first of all, I least expected it. I didn't think, oh, why is he picking me? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't really know me much. But I thought somebody may have noticed, so that really gave me a lot of... Yeah. Um, well, I felt privileged, really. I, I experienced the privilege. And, um, and then, the, it's then the realization that this is a huge responsibility. You know, how do, I, how do I represent the president, but also my country? You know, all South Africans in this small little country, which was sort of sitting on the fence during the Second World War, which has um, a totally different political system to what we have. Um, so I, did, I had to do a lot of learning about the Swiss and how they do their politics and how the people live their lives. Um, uh, but I also had to sell our country, you, you know, South Africa in the best, show its best face to, mm. to the people. And, and, and the, the wonderful thing about coming back to the issue of power and, and, and was that you could, as an ambassador, you could knock on every door and, they, and it would open. You know, which was a president or the head of a bank, you know, the UBS bank, Credit Swiss Bank, or whether it was the editor of a popular Swiss newspaper. You know, you knocked on the door and they opened it for you. So, yeah, you had to navigate your way around that kind of power. You had to engage with it because it was going to help you to achieve your goals of promoting your country and your foreign policy on the one hand, but also um, you as an individual had to be quite credible, uh, very responsible, um, completely accountable, um, and, and do the best you can. And I loved it. I flourished in that environment. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it a lot. By the time, I mean, they, they still talk about my time there. Mm. I made lots of friends and... Uh, do you yeah, speak French or do you speak... I learned a bit of German because yeah, I could German. speak Afrikaans, which yeah, was easy. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't... I, I struggled with French. I can understand it, yeah. but talking is too difficult. Mm. I did for one year of study. If you don't practice it, no. Yeah. <laughs> In the book, Right to Speak, you mentioned that you had to resign from a board of directors of a major listed company because the policy clearly stated that individuals would not, could not serve beyond the age of 70. 
Do you think that is ageism or is there wisdom in such a policy? I think the company tried to be wise about it because we, it was also the kind of company that had read the King for guidelines very carefully. And King 4 says you can only be on a board for nine It recommends that after nine years, yeah. people should really come Pretend, off the board yeah. and yeah, find somebody else. So I had done eight years. Um, mm. And so this was going to be my ninth year. Um, but, but the company had decided also, you know, like executives have to retire at 60 in most companies. Mm -hmm. So they had figured out that 70 would be an appropriate age to retire. We didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with it yeah. necessarily that I was willing to go along with it because of King Nine, King Four, uh, and I'd been there eight years. I was into my ninth year. Yeah. So, so, so uh, my 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 birthday came before the end of the ninth year, uh, and I left uh, in May 2020 after I'd done an eight full eight yeah. eight years, and I was just about to begin the ninth year. Because I'm thinking in the context of the diversity uh, of skills and age and experience, what does it say when we kind of have that kind of arbitrary cutoff when yeah. the person is still vital and can still contribute? Exactly. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it didn't make sense, but that's what it was. So you oh. sort of go along with it and say, okay. There's an opportunity for me to apply to another board and get on, yeah. which I did. and. Um, yeah, I'm still right. I'm still working. Yeah. One of your passions is corporate governance. Um, as a seasoned non-executive director, what has your reaction been to the contents of the state capture commission reports that have been handed over to the presidency so far? And what wisdom can you share um, with aspirant board members on how they can navigate their responsibilities? Yeah, you know, uh, besides feeling very, very sad and, and disappointed yeah. and and uh, sort of awestruck by the renege kind of board members who must have been running these institutions, um, my my sadness is about the fact that they've created a culture now of of bad corporate uh, governance. You know, and these things are very hard to change around. Yes. So unearthing all this information has been good in many ways, but now the challenge of how do we fix the, mm. the boards and how do they select new boards to, to go and restore the essence of these very important institutions in our country. Um, yeah, so I think, I think board members are just going to need to be properly vetted. And, and at some stage in the course... Of their of their function, they need to be you know the board the board um, evaluations that we normally do need yeah. to be relooked at. Yeah, because they're yeah. actually not weeding out the ethical issues. They're obviously, not, the ethical issues are being totally overlooked, uh, and 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 really, um, it has scarred the entire the, the the corporate governance has been so scarred, you know that we are uh, probably all being painted with the same brush yeah. um, at the moment. Uh, yes, and the government just has to make sure that people go to jail for the, for, for the impunity with which do they you, behave. Do you see that happening at all? Well, it should happen, and if it doesn't, then I guess we're just going to have to keep 
raising our voices to make sure that this impunity comes to an end because we can't, it'll just destroy this country. It really, really will. Yeah. I think South Africans deserve a lot better than what we've had. Yes, really, that's really. for sure. I think we need to understand that we deserve better. Absolutely. So that we're intolerant of it in the first we have place. To be to yeah. this total zero tolerance on corruption. What's the most courageous decision you've ever taken? Well, I was chairing, I was chairing, um, I'm not going to say which organization, I was chairing an institution uh, where we worked with the state and a minister came to me and wanted me to use the money and divert it from one. From, the constitution said we needed to use the money for this purpose, and he wanted the money used for another purpose. Yep. So he had spoken to the CEO, and she had spoken to me as chairperson and said, look, the minister, I said no. I said, we won't give the minister this money because the constitution says we can't. And... Um, if, if we, there, is a, there is a way in which it can be done, but we need to ask Treasury for permission first. So for me, that was about really understanding mm. the policy and knowing exactly what your mandate is, but yeah. also sticking to your mandate and your lane and making sure you do the right thing. Yes. So we went to Treasury, and Treasury said no. So that was the end of it. He was very mad with me, but, you know, yeah. I, I, I was doing what I had been asked to do, too. Yeah, so that was a hard moment where politics and my role as the chair of, a, of an organization, which had lots and lots of money, by the way, yeah. but um, which was very clear about how this money should be spent. It is amazing that we don't see the privilege of our positions, that we think state funds are our personal funds, that we can just direct. We yeah, don't, no, we're not no, custodians of that money. No, we're not. It's yeah. just amazing, which I think is what's breeding the corruption that we are exactly. having. Exactly. But I think I also gained a lot of respect from him because we're never stopping friends. I mean, yeah. he's always nice when he sees me. Yeah. And, you know, because I think sometimes we also imagine the worst when we say no to yes. certain things, where in fact you are building credibility mm and the very people who are pushing you into being dishonest and doing things that you ought not to be doing um, end up respecting you for it. Because so they also want to see how far they can push you. Exactly. So, it's exactly. A, so that is a different way of looking at courage, isn't it? That you stand your ground and the people that will respect you will respect you. And those that don't, then it means that exactly. they don't deserve yeah. your respect anyway. Um, as we draw to a close, what legacy are you striving to leave in the world? Well, I think right to speak is the beginning of that legacy. Yeah. Um, to, 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 to make our voices heard, but our voices written. And, and I'm going to continue to, to do this, uh, to encourage other women to write and yeah. write, write myself as well. Um, Please. And this will be really for generations yeah. to come. And hopefully our stories will be read. I think storytelling is a brilliant way of leaving legacy. Because yeah. all you do is just say what happened. The story is just about what happened. Which is why I'm going to plead, can you write about the impact of apartheid? Because there's a whole generation. I mean, by the time some of us came on, I've spent more time in the new South Africa than in the old South Africa. Right. So my experiences are totally different, even at my age. 
So if we can have another anthology of such stories, that yeah, would be great. Is there still something on your bucket list? Yeah, I, I just love traveling. And so, you know, there are some countries I haven't been to, like India. I haven't been to India yet, to Japan. Oh, I love India. Um, but uh, I, I love I love traveling. It, okay. it just opens your mind, your heart, everything. So, and I, also South Africa. I think I haven't really traveled around my own country yet enough. So still doing the short lived yeah. business. The, the little towns. My my friends always laugh. Like you go to Colesburg, Burford West. You stop in all these little towns, and years down the line, it's still misdudu because there aren't too many Africans sleeping over yeah, in those true. places, yes. uh, in those particular establishments. And that's what nation building is, where we Absolutely. introduce each other to each other because we're in one country and we still have sections that don't actually mix as much. That's correct. So, that's so true. So you're short-lived. Yeah, I'm short-lived. With my grandchildren because I have five of them. Oh, wow. Yes, I'd like to shower with them. So they, they know how to deal with different women. Yeah, 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 that would be amazing. In closing, um, what wisdom would you like to leave us with? Something that uh, you would like us to ponder? Yes, I mean, I think for me the most important thing is, and again, when I signed the book, I signed for passion and yeah. purpose. Yes, I looked at and that. future generations. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think not to let go of our passions. And, and living your life purposefully uh, is, is for me very, very important. Why? Why, why, you, why do you do Google choose to do what you do? Mm. To do? You know, what's the purpose of what you're doing? And, yeah. and you have clarity about, yeah. about it. And, and how does that purposefulness and that passion that you have fulfill who you are? You know, are you living the person that you think you're supposed to be? And if you are, then you're doing a hell of a great job. You know, I have no idea. <laughs> I just like every second. It's like an experience. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, but I must say the one reason why we having this conversation is exactly that to start documenting our stories, but curating African wisdom. Because most times when we're quoting wisdom, I'm quoting Western thinkers, Eastern right. thinkers. So. I've loved quotes since I was a child, so it's always amazing when people post and I think, God, please say who the quote is from. Don't steal somebody else's ideas. Because yeah. since I was a child, that's been my thing, quotes. Yeah. So, But I'd love somebody to say, I heard Ambassador General Ripadil say this, and somebody in America quoting that, somebody in Japan quoting yes. that. That's my dream. This nice. is why we're doing what we're doing. Excellent. Yeah. Very good. But thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much. And <laughs> your calmness is really calming. You are very calm. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you talk about anger, I'm like, okay, can I see <laughs> Gosh, that's an amazing character to have. Thank you. There is a hammer proverb from the DRC that says, wisdom is like fire. People take it from others. I hope you have taken wisdom from this conversation that will inspire you on your life journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Durumsomi. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. 
I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.